This was an awesome, awesome, awesome open mic session, which is what we do all the time right after the live show that I hope you come to. Man, just noticed a couple of things. One is this launch that Apple had that you probably haven't even heard of, but it's a great example of category thinking and category design and how Apple operates and why they're geniuses. Also, we had a community member talk about, am I ready to start a community? And um, STK, Suzanne Taylor King, gave him some great advice. It was after her episode. And then I had to share Alex Ramosi's offer formula that I figured out was awesome from stalking Alex Ramosi's content. And that's it. I hope you enjoy this. I hope it's you know just a little preview of what we talk about at the open mic session, which is the reason why I'm sharing this is so that you show up to one of them. You can register in the show notes and that's it. Enjoy this episode. If you know how it is, then you know how it might be. But think what it would look like if you grow your own community. It ain't easy. That's why you're listening to hear experiences from others just like you and me. Welcome to the B2B Community Builder Podcast, a show that was started because if you can unlock the power of having a community around your business, then you will create a source of referrals, validation, marketing content, and product feedback that will be unbeatable. But who has time to think about building a community when you need to be making sure that your team has what it needs to succeed in serving clients and bringing in revenue? That is why we'll be talking to business leaders like you and I that have cracked the code on why the community play is so valuable, how to implement tactics that got them there while still serving short-term goals, and what they can teach you that they have mastered. This show is for you if you are a CEO, CMO, or simply a rainmaker that has realized that without a community, you are just a commodity, but haven't figured out how to add it to your infinite list of priorities. This show is for you if you are a community professional or trying to be a community professional that is trying to convince leadership about the need to invest in a community strategy. This show is not for you if you think transactions are more valuable than relationships. I am your host and chief executive connector, Pablo Gonzalez, co-founder of BeTheStage.Live, a marketing company that specializes in relationship-driven growth. I invented the relationship flywheel and hopefully... I'm your new best friend. So smash that subscribe button, leave a rating when you do, and get ready to plug into the power of community creation for business development. Let's go. I'm a real estate agent. So I've got this bright idea that, hey, this would be a good idea to get to know people in the area by starting a business spotlight podcast. I interview businesses and I just put them out there. So I'm foreign and I have probably about 85 or 90 downloads. I'm like, wow, this is pretty cool. I don't know what's good or not, but what's too soon to ask for people to, because I want to start, I want to do what you're doing. Just start in my own community with people that I know I can trust, a small group where we refer business back and forth. So that's what I'm trying to develop. So what's, what's too soon to start going? I don't want to throw Never too soon. Phone. It's never too soon. Just schedule it. So I work. I, one of my patients from when I was a dental hygienist is actually my client now, and he's a realtor locally here in New Jersey. He literally started having a coffee chat live at Starbucks for local business owners. And 
it it started with four people and then he filled up the table at Starbucks and then he had to take it to another location because he had so many business owners coming. And so literally just start with those four or five people who love you, want to support you and have the conversations nobody else is having and they'll invite other people for sure. Yeah, Joe, I would I would add to just have a plan for it, man. Like Venia, our resident community scientist, is putting in the chat, all you need for community are three people like you and three people you look up to or three people you think you can help. And that's the seed for your community. You can start today. I would say just approach with, we talked a lot about this like giving mentality. And yeah. part of that giving mentality is knowing that you're not going to waste somebody's time. So if have a plan for it. If you have three, four, five businesses that have been on the show and you're like, hey man, I want to have a community, just have something in mind for what the actual value prop is and what you're going to be able to deliver, right? Like communities generally, when I see them, have a have a story arc, right? Like generally it starts with an evangelist that wants to bring people together. That's clearly you right now. Then it expands into the eight to 15 evangelists that are out there promoting it, which Suzanne has done really, really well. And that should be like the initial inner circle. And at that stage, before it goes from what everybody considers a community of 50, 100, whatever, plus when it's just like that small thing, your biggest risk in the community is the feeling of over-promising and under-delivering. Because it's easy for you as an evangelist to speak for it and be like, yeah, I'm going to deliver on this thing. But once other people start promising for you, then you got to have real tight kind of boundaries around that. So to avoid that, if you're starting with a small group, it's just what's the clear thing that we're going to do here? And what is the environment that I can control? What's the thing that you can control? And just stick to that. As long as you're delivering on the promise, like a brand, then people aren't going to be upset about it. And it can be as small as, hey, we're a five-person WhatsApp group that is pointing out good networking events locally in town, or it's a Zoom call once a month where each one of us shares this one thing, or it's a Facebook group that we're inviting our friends to. But just be very clear on what the promise is and what part of that promise you can guarantee and what part of that promise you don't want anybody to guarantee because you know it's bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. I like the idea of deciding, are people coming for introductions? Are they coming for learning? Are they coming just for the conversation piece? Mm -hmm. And if everybody's on board with that, it just makes it so much easier. Yeah. I'd love to hear. So John, it sounds like you got something to say. I appreciate you being super active in the chat the whole time, man. You got some advice there? I used to be extremely shy. And then in working with Suzanne, I've been able to come out of my shell in the last few weeks. I thought you were super shy already. I didn't know. I was afraid people might not like me and make fun of my $76,000 twin turbo. Shoot, I think notes. It's a lot of work. That's something I think people don't realize. It doesn't just organically happen and people don't automatically contribute. Oh, I echo everything Pablo said. Totally agree with everything. Have a clear purpose, intention, clear expectations of what's required. So Suzanne's helped me with my group. I've helped her with her group. And we've talked about a lot of these things. Clear expectations of what's required. So if you're a client of mine, it's 10 minutes in the morning, 10 minutes at night. If you're Suzanne and I just like you, then it's five minutes in the morning and five minutes at night. And the last thing I would say is make sure you charge money. People just don't value free. So even if it's $10 a month, 
I had my community for a couple of years before I started charging. The day I said I'm going to start charging, everybody was way more active. So just the idea that you're going to, people don't value free. So clear expectations, charge money, and realize that it's a lot of work. You got to text, call, and email people all the time. They don't just contribute that other than Suzanne and I to each other, but, and Daniel does, but it's not normal. Yeah. Yeah. I can that. Yeah. I think that was the biggest awareness for me. I don't participate in things like I don't say yes to something and then not participate. And I had to wrap my head around, whoa, ah, that's not everybody. So being really clear with the expectations, even of my community experts, that was a work in progress. They were growing with me. They were super understanding. There's many of them here in this room right now. And they understood that we're figuring this out together. And if somebody new came on board next week, there's very clear, and it's going to be in a handbook for community mentors because of that. It needs to be spelled out and super clear what the expectations are. And if I expect even members to post twice a week and share a weekly win at least, that would up activity in the community by 100%. Yeah, huge. So we're right now in the middle of launching this. I'm going to say it again, category design. Anybody here heard of category design? Do you know what that is? Mr. Lockett! (laughs) Category pirates! (laughs) Yeah. So we're launching this like category design community with with the category design advisors. And we're essentially following very similar to everything that we discussed here with Suzanne, right? We are very mindfully launching to a group of 20 ambassadors inside a channel with this promise of, hey, we're going to be bringing on category, big time VCs and you get to interview them. Or if you're having, if you're trying to like struggle through what your POV is, you get to come on and we're going to workshop it. You get to be on the podcast, right? Share the stage is one value prop. Other value prop is this idea of category design is this like super nebulous thing that you have a hard time applying as a regular person. And we are starting with 20 to 30 ambassadors that we're going to bring into this thing. And we're hand-to-hand recruiting them right now. And I bring all this up to say that we're right now having those conversations of what's expected of me as an ambassador. So being very, very clear about that. And for us, it's as simple as, hey, come to one of the live events at least every other month, listen to the podcast every week once we start publishing it and post something about the podcast inside the channel at least once a week and in general check in and be part of conversations right and once this thing gets going invite people to it so this idea of like all right i got to listen to it. all i'm committing to is like listening to a podcast and like posting about it inside of a slack channel coming to one event every two months right that's the minimum viable ask that we're asking of the ambassadors but we're making it very clear if you're not if you're just like checking the box to put this thing on your LinkedIn profile, no thanks. But if you're going to do it, you got to do this, right? So what can you deliver on? So if we're going all the way back to Joe's original question, Joe, if you're having this group of local businesses being clear on what the value prop is for them to join this thing, what your ask is of them, and what you are willing to give to them in order to do it, you have something that you can cook with there. And if you ever want to workshop does that value prop 
hold some water, you can always come back here and ask it or ask any of us on LinkedIn or whatever. But you can start with anything. Like it could be, hey, we're going to get together once every two weeks and go for a three mile run or something. There's actually a community and it's a franchise option. It's called Lunch Lunch Circles. And it's done by an executive women's group. And it's not something you need to go out there and buy. But the principle is you form this circle of people. And every time you get together, it's one of the people's responsibility to teach something to everyone else of value and bring one stranger to the lunch. And so those that scope was really intriguing to me. I was like, oh, so they're bringing value and then they're bringing a stranger. So they're expanding each other's circles, lunch circles. I liked it. I was like, I like this concept of it's more than just networking. You're learning and growing as entrepreneurs, business owners. Like that was attractive to me. And everybody wins. And everybody wins. The good part. Everybody wins. Yeah. Awesome. Venia, I realize I missed one of your community scientist comments in the chat that I think is worth repeating out here out loud. You want to talk to us about membranes and porosity when it comes to community? Yeah, sure. I also, (laughs) this is in so many of my talks. So if you want to know more, YouTube. But basically, communities are defined as scopes. Socioculturally, the definition of a community has existed for upwards of 80 years. And it is defined as a community is a well-defined unit of culture. That unit is a scope or what we call a research site. The scopes of community that you build in your community, do you have VIP members? Do you have engaged members? Do you have general users? Each of these individual scopes presents a specific amount of practices and experiences, rituals that they engage in. For outer scopes, like just your standard new users, those behaviors are going to be decided and defined by the actions that they have to take in order to access that space. And as they get closer, what they're doing is they're crossing a specific set of membranes. They're going from scope A to smaller scope B, from scope B to adjacent scope C. And each time they move that scope, there's a membrane there. That membrane is defined by two particular elements. The first one is transparency. I'm looking into this community. I see this unit. I see its value. I want to be a part of it. How? And then the second one, which is porosity. How easy or conversely, how difficult is it for them to transgress that membrane? And what you're doing is you're building a process, a standard, a funnel. You want to call it, it essentially onboards them from scope A to smaller scope B. And it's that ask where you're like, okay, you have to perform these things and you have these responsibilities. If you're going to be in this community, how do you want to go about this? And once they've agreed to that, it could be your finances. I know that Susan, you were asking about like, where do you ask for that $150? That's where you do that. And then once they go into that scope, that upkeep and that expectation is a part of the ritual practices that that scope maintains. That's why we call it the community scientist. Anywhere in the science of community, does it talk about finding a sexy, humble Pakistani genius, Venya? Just asking for a friend. <laughs> yes, actually, there is one in every community. And you just want to adapt them. And I almost felt them. triggered. 
Good news for you, Sajat. There's another one? I never know when I'm supposed to be triggered. I want to meet this guy or lady. (laughs) If it's a lady, I'll fly her in. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Does anybody have another like outright question of something that we can workshop together? If not, I have a couple of things that I'd love to share with everybody. Go ahead. Okay. All right, here we go. So I've got three. I knew that Suzanne would be bringing some new people here. So I wanted to just share a couple of things that I've observed. I'm just going to rattle them off because my team post produces this for social media later. And then we can discuss on any of them or go back to questions or any of that stuff. Number one, Apple just had a big acquisition recently. Anybody heard of it? No. So yeah, yeah. we've been hearing all this stuff about AI and all these things that are all the all this technology, you'd think that Apple would have done something like that. Their big acquisition lately, they acquired a classical music streaming service and relaunched it as Apple Classical Music. And we talk about, we talk a lot about category design here in this community. And to me, this is a classic example of category thinking. When everybody's out there trying to like hook into the thing that everybody else is doing and try to do it better or try to do it faster or whatever they do. Apple, who's a legendary classic, they have been continuous category designers forever. They go out there and they acquire something that is completely different. And what makes it completely different is two things. Number one, if you are a classical musical listener, there has been a problem for a really, really long time on finding the thing that you want to do. Classical music has a bunch of different nuances that doesn't allow for Spotify or the regular streaming service to catalog it, right? Like one composition can be done by a certain composer and a certain tone and a certain key or a different instrument or whatever. And therefore it has a bunch of different cataloging things. So Apple, instead of going out there and figuring out how, what Google's doing about AI and Microsoft's doing about AI and how can they do it better, they went out there and found a problem that exists in the ecosystem and figured out that they could solve a problem, right? That's number one in category design. The other thing is that they went straight after a niche community, right? This idea that classical musical, classic, I keep saying classical music listeners are fans of classical music that use it all the time, that are that talk about it nonstop and have communities based around this stuff is completely different to the typical purview of, oh, I want to think for the masses, right? If you can target a group of fanatics, then you have the chance to really get a mass adoption and mass use very, very quickly to reach the scale that you're trying to get to then go out to the rest of the masses, right? I think it's really, really interesting that they did this. They just announced it like end of March that they're launching this Apple classic classical music streaming channel, completely different than anything else anybody's doing. And the reason why is because they think like category designers, right? They're out there targeting a plot problem and targeting a niche that they can go in there, land and expand and grow their services, right? If Apple can get the world of classical musical music listeners, then guess what? They're going to start needing that device and they're eventually going to switch from their Samsung phones to their iPhones. They're going to switch from their like tablet to an iPad. They're going to switch from their laptop to a MacBook Pro, right? So that is classic Apple, classic category design, target a problem, solve a problem for people, target a fanatical fan base, and then get them get them riled up. 
and now expand into your closed ecosystem, super high LTV, the moment that you buy one Apple product, you're going to buy all the Apple products. Really, really different way of acquiring, of acquiring clients. That's point number one. Point number two, women's final four in college basketball. Did anybody watch it or read anything about it or anything like that? I don't even like men's college basketball. So it, but this thing really hit my radar a bunch. Like for the first time ever, I had my chats of my friends discussing this like final four game between Iowa and South Carolina. And it started piquing my curiosity. And I found this woman's final four eclipsed the previous record of any women's college basketball final ever. Their previous one was 5.9 million watchers in 2002. This year, it was 9.9 million. They broke the record by 74%. This wasn't like an incremental gain of just more people are watching this thing. This is a major, major thing that happened. And on top of that, it happened in a year where their TV deal that's expiring that they signed in 1996 for 6 million bucks is being negotiated. So this is going to be a big payday for women's college basketball. I think it's awesome. And I just want to say that the reason why I think this happened is because stories sell. What ended up happening in this final four is that there was a team all year long that was undefeated. That was the best team. Then there was this player, Caitlin Clark from Iowa, who was the best player all season long. She was this really, really compelling figure in the semifinal, the undefeated team that was this like unprecedentedly good team met this, the best player of the year. And it created this massive storyline because the game before this player, Caitlin Clark had a triple double with 40 plus points. Nobody had ever done that. So big headline, right? Going into storyline of David (laughs) DeVita versus Goliath, right? Going into this thing. And it ended up being a super dramatic game in the semifinal that increased the viewership even more that then got this huge record number in the final game. And the reason why I'm bringing all this stuff up is to say that stories sell. It doesn't matter what the brand is. It doesn't matter what the product is. More people than ever got wrapped up in a story of this ascending kind of like genius player against this like unstoppable force team got wrapped up in that one giant moment. And then they all showed up for the final. And that is a huge moment for women's college basketball forever. It's going to completely redefine the contract that they're going to be able to negotiate. And for me as business owners, I think that this is the opportunity of social media, LinkedIn, having your people on there, right? Like people care much less about what you're doing and how you're doing it and whatnot. And they care much more about what the story of this thing is, right? So if you can build up this drama that happens, right? This like things that you are building up to and allow people to follow along with it. It adds massive value to the attention that you get and the amount of people cheering for you and the word of mouth that it can create. All right. So I see this thing and I just see this as a direct correlation to call to make protagonists happen inside of your business. If you're not one yourself, if you're not a evangelist CEO of your own thing, this is the value of it. If you are not promoting the people in your community to become stars, this is the value of it. If you are not 
fully supporting your employees and your teammates to post stuff online and be really, really interesting on LinkedIn, this is the value of it, right? Like these externalities are created by stories and this is a massive, massive moment for them. And I think that this type of stuff can be engineered for business. If you have your employees posting about going to a big conference and having this thing that they're going to launch and allowing people on and creating drama around it. We refer to our community as something a little bit different than this community, but like in a product world, community often is like a free or freemium version of a product that you're trying to get people to use and engage. And we've got a, a, it's a little collaborative and not in the way that you're interfacing directly with one another, but we're sharing content and information about cyber threats and allowing people to put like better context around them so other people can use them and leverage them. So our how we started to drive users to our platform and our community was really around, and it sounds funny, we co-opted as much other community information that we could find from other communities and brought them into our community. And then we use a special sauce data science-y thing to uplift that community content and then give it back. A big thing in like cybersecurity is if you'll say, hey, like here, this is how you stop this one thing. And there's no trust behind that. And so what we do is we bring that piece into our platform. We basically run it through like a gamut of tests. And then we present it back and tell you how well it did. And that's really how we've made our community a bit more, I'll say, abundant in that perspective, because we had to define a body of content that's unique to us, which would draw people in. It doesn't matter how much, I don't know, outbound marketing, SDR stuff that we have calling people to bring them in. We needed that word of mouth of saying, hey, oh, you guys take the you guys take the Atomic Red Team community and the Sigma community and you actually smash them together and we tell you what's best. And that was a really interesting thing for us. From my perspective now is like, what's the next step? How do we take these people who are engaging with us in a, at a community level and then put them into somebody who's going to pay for something? Because our business model then leapfrogs from, hey, you're using something for free to give us six figures and deploy this across your Fortune 100 company. So it's a little different. So working through what that progression of how do we pull them along and make them part of our story, what we're dealing with. Interesting, man. I I had that issue too. Let's. I want to hit on that in a second. Real quick for you though, what we were talking about is this idea of, are there people in your community that do the same thing? And how do you even the same thing as you, how do you maintain differentiation between like co-opetition versus collaborating? Yeah, we, like everybody, we're a startup. So we like to think we don't really have competition, but we do. But we do, we like to think that we have a bit of a different perspective. So even our direct competitors, they provide us two things. One, if we both have thriving communities, that's validation that our market space is like healthy and thriving and growing. And there's room for more than one of us. If it was just us in the only game in town, I would be scared. (laughs) Like, why is nobody else doing this? So what we tend to do is we work closely with those communities that do very similar things to us, but do it maybe on the open source lane so that we do work together. And our whole approach is 
how can we enhance their value as much as they can enhance our value? There's some that are pure play, like competitors that we don't, we just like, and we bump up against a little bit and we don't really talk to them. But yeah, we definitely try to bring on board those folks. The key for us is how do we engage with like the leadership of those communities and the evangelists? Because if we can tap into their networks, which are usually greatly larger than our networks, if they start saying things like, hey, they took my project and they changed it in an interesting, different way, that's like gold, gold for us. Love that, man. Love that. It's What I find really interesting is like the universality of all this stuff, right? While we went from talking about coaching communities and solopreneur communities to talking to cybersecurity communities, right? Very different things. The idea that, again, back to category design, expanding the tent by evangelizing the problem is always good for us. Whether you're a coach that's evangelizing the need for coaching, if you have a problem and you're alone and you need somebody to like show you the way you need a coach, whether it's me or somebody else, or hey, we're, we have these massive cybersecurity things. Everybody needs cybersecurity in their life. It's a giant vulnerability, right? Like that, I see. Another thing that I, that I see as a natural thing is this idea of like, how do you get somebody in, provide them some value, provide them a stage, right? Like with Peter, it's you're, you're solving for a problem and we're giving you this like third-party validation that the thing that you did was well done, right? And giving like feedback on that to me is a, like an awesome little example of a stage. Whereas for us, it might be, hey, you're coming on my podcast. I'm going to give you some marketing about yourself, right? But it's like, how do you add value that gives people some social validation? Super universal things in community, right? Expand the tent, add value to the people around you. And then another universal problem. How do I take somebody from a non-paying subscriber to like my super high ticket offer? Does that anybody have a take on that one to begin with before I talk about it? Gosh, yes. I would say... <laughs> value, value, value. And what's the relationship that you have with that person? And I'll use this example that having a relationship, Daniel introduced me to someone who we had a great first call, lots of things in common, a couple software things to talk about. And we didn't talk for a couple months. And I just reached back out to say, Hey, what's up? It's been a couple months. How are you? How's that thing we talked about? And he said, I really want to hop on another call. I have a couple clients that need what you offer, but are you open to some feedback about your offer? And I was like, sure. We connected, we talked about it, and he compared my offer to the likes of an offer from Frank Kern. And I was like, whoa, all right, let's talk about this. I was like, wow, it compares to that. And he said, yeah, with a couple of key differences, you need to raise the price on the offer, change the ideal client a bit, and I can sell it all day long to my clients before they work with me. So exactly what I was talking about with Sajad, right? And I was open to that feedback because of the trust that I have. And Daniel introduced me to this person. So there was like borrowed trust there that accelerated my relationship with this person and enabled me to appreciate his feedback, not like it was just from a stranger. Because Mm -hmm. 
I borrowed the trust I have in Daniel. So I think in a community that can happen over and over again because you have good relationships with people and you can actually leverage a person from a low-end offer up your ascension ladder if you have that or jump right to, and I will tell you, that's worked for me in a community I'm in that I pay $550 a month to be in and to learn in that community because we have that common interest. I've met two one-on-one clients in that community because of the common interest of the community. They skipped my low-end two offers and went right to my high-end offer. So I think community can do both of those things for you, allow you to borrow trust from your other trusted members that you're connected to, and it can also establish you as more of an expert because I'm in this other community, met this person, he asked me some questions about what I do and immediately went to my high ticket offer because he already knew we were together in that community learning that same knowledge. So I think it can do both for you. I, for me at least, I absolutely agree. And I I think that there's one observation that has caught in the undertow in that story. Mm-hmm. The notion of reputation, trust value, and social currency is not garnered purely based upon asset. It's garnered based upon the social reciprocity that you retain in individual conversations. And that cannot be gained by adding value to your community in the form of asset give it away. That's not what value really means. And you have to go beyond this extrinsic reward, this notion of if you come into this community, I will give you a thing. You have to move beyond that because the difference between a useful community and a meaningful community is one most predominantly of self-disclosure. People coming in and saying, great, this is an awesome thing. And you going, oh, hey, no, yeah, totally. Who are you? Can we learn more about? Oh, hey, we think we thought we might have a thing. Do you have another problem that you'd like to? Oh, hey, here's another asset. And then over time, you start to build this undertow discussion of people who trust you saying, get in on this, get on, come in, get in on this. And it's that growth. It's that factor. It's what makes a community meaningful. So for me, at least, I think it's important when any person, like we love being on the stage, right? Like I love talking and so does everyone at CMX. And so do all of the amazing consultants and Pablo and I, like we own a stage, but the reality is at the end of the day, it's about that integral intimate self-disclosure and creating more opportunities for that one-on-one self-disclosure to collide among members in your community. That's what makes your community meaningful. That's what's going to get them going up that ladder. I absolutely am so in love with you right now that I want to make sure we connect and I have you on my live stream show, Venya. You're amazing. And for those of you who are in my community. How many of you feel like that? How many of you feel connected to me 
you feel like you know me, you feel like it's transparent, you feel like it wasn't just about some random PDF you were going to get for joining my community. I know everyone, like, I know that. And that is fan flipping amazing. I want to curse right now, but I'm not going to. Sajad's going to tell me just to let it fly, but I'm going to hold it. Thank you, Venya. Amazing. If I'm hearing correct, first of all, every time Venya talks, anytime on one of these Zoom calls, this same same thing happens. I love it. Am I hearing correctly? So if I have something to share on offers in a second, because I think it's part of the equation here. But if I'm hearing correctly from both of you, I'm hearing if Peter has a community of people that are free and then his big offer is six figures and above and it's an enterprise deal, the answer to it is identification of who can you actually help via personal touch and systematization of that. Is that kind of like the summary of it? I think so. Yeah, more or less. There are some complexities involved in that because if you were to copy and paste that and then put it into a thing and then say, great, go implement, I'm not entirely sure that a lot of people would be able to make it to that finish line. So there's a lot of complexities there. But the core of the statement is, I don't care how big of an offer you have. I don't care how small of an offer you have. The progression of your community from larger scope to smaller scope is one of self-disclosure. It's one of a conversation and a funnel is a one-on-one conversation that you are having with the person. And that's your behaviors. That's your action. Cool. Great. But then there's this second thing, this scope notion of individuals in various different places of their user journey and you being able to encourage self-disclosure, ask questions, get to know them, develop that conversational trust. That's what's going to sell the big ticket item. Yeah. I think people are searching for a level of intimacy that is not common. And when they can discover that someplace, they feel safe because they feel seen and therefore they feel safe. So when you see me and I'm that safe to expose myself to you, then you're going to know exactly what I need. So I will trust exactly what you're offering. So intimacy is a scary word, but it's truly what it's about. It's not just knowing somebody. It's being intimate. You're sharing that that ability of who you are and who you're not with them. Yeah. Love it. My head goes to the idea that community is also this like gold mine for feedback that can can inform product map, product roadmap. Mm-hmm. So I think if you ask me, one of the biggest things that changed for me, thanks to community, is this idea that my only offer was a close to $100,000 a year done for you service for a while. And via community, I've started to uncover different entry points into things that I can leverage my existing abilities for my team and the people, you know, in the seats of the bus doing the same things, staying in the same seat on the same bus, but spinning it off into different products that allow for greater revenue generation for myself via different price points and having a neater client journey. The idea that the stuff that we did as a way to launch the done for you internet talk show as a go to market fully developed motion just that launch that at just 15k that set somebody up with all this like sales enablement material plus a strategy that they can go and go out and execute themselves that leads to closing on existing pipeline as you are generating future pipeline 
that became another entry point into what I could do based on the amount of people that I had talked to. That's like, dude, I love what you're doing. I wish I could give you a hundred thousand dollars, but that's not in my budget, but maybe 15 K I can pitch to my VP of marketing. Another thing was the class, right? Like our cohort, our bootcamp, teaching our entire processes, giving away our SOPs and all that stuff at a thousand bucks became another way of also monetizing the people that you're already adding value to and being able to allow them to help invest in in your success as well. And I phrase that deliberately because I think that there is a, most of us that aren't sociopaths have a feeling of this community thing is a giant game of what's the lever of influence that I'm thinking about. It's the one that is of reciprocity. So the average human being, part of a community, the longer they're in that community, the more they subconsciously feel indebted to you. And if you can uncover an offer that allows them to feel like what I pitched in, the better that they're going to feel and the more that they're going to stick around. It sounds counterintuitive, but it's real. Like for me, the example of that was, man, I learned so much from Gary Vee as I was doing my transition from corporate America to entrepreneur. And Gary's a guy that only sold Fortune 500 contracts when he released a shoe. I hated it and I didn't buy it because I thought it was hideous. But when he released the second shoe that I thought was good looking, I went out and bought it. I was like, you know what? Fuck it. I want to spend 120 bucks on Gary. When he released a line of rosé, I don't really drink a lot of wine, but I use it as gifts. Like I bought like a couple cases of it so that I could give it to people as gifts. I think it sounds trivial, Peter, especially at the scale that you're at and solving for cybersecurity. But if you can take that feedback and develop some other offers that allow people to pay you for something that allows the folks on your team that are already doing what they're doing, be able to sell something to them. I think that's another path into it. And it doesn't always start with like, all right, I have this like $150,000 enterprise solution. So I'm going to create an $80,000 one. It's exactly halfway. It could be an $80,000 one, or it could be like a $1,000 thing. So people feel like they're that they're part of it. Maybe it's Maybe it's some kind of instructional thing or an organizational course. Maybe it's can your team go in there and figure something small out or whatever, or set them up in in some way? Maybe it's your SOPs for something. I don't know, but I'm sure that there's something else in your company that you can monetize without a giant lift that would allow people to take that next step into paying you something that would might increase revenue trivially, or maybe it's a real revenue thing. But more importantly, if they pay you a hundred bucks, they're more likely to pay you a hundred thousand bucks down the line too. If you get them buying something, it could also lead to this idea of, I got to win from this. So now I'm going to push harder with my CTO to really hire these guys for everything. That's where my head went. Real quick, y'all. We talked a lot about offers today and I am super fanatical on how offers affect business and how what you are offering will basically affect your sales process, how you talk about it, how you can market, all these different things. I found an amazing formula of how to think of an offer that I had never heard before in Alex Ramosi's content last week. And I wanted to share it with you because I just found it so profound. I even made a slide for it for right now. So this is what Alex put out here. This idea that your offer, the likelihood of your offer being accepted is a function of desired of a numerator and a denominator, right? On the top is the desired outcome multiplied by likelihood of success over the time delay multiplied by the addition of effort and sacrifice. So what does that mean, right? I put desired outcome in all caps. 
Because at the end of the day, right, what do we talk about? It's the what's in it for you is the most important piece. If you're a coach and you're, the desired outcome that you are promising is I'm going to help you close a million dollars in sales is going to be much more powerful than I'm going to help you set up your marketing funnel, right? So the thing that you're controlling that you can deliver is the most important part of the equation, right? So think about what is the best desired outcome that you can actually promise and how you can phrase it in that regard, right? Not like you might be working on solving a cybersecurity issue or what you're working on is I'm going to plug a $25 million a year leak that you have going on right now. So that desired outcome is number one, then likelihood of success, right? The way that this varies is the idea of how certain is this thing, right? Like how that is, that comes from how many times you've done this before is one way that they think about likelihood of success, right? What is your, what is your experience with it and how much you can make that a validation thing? Or it also is just like, how linear of a path is this for me, right? My, my offer when it comes to building a community for someone, the likelihood of success of having a community is not really something that I control as much as I can put all the things around you, but I still need you to play ball and I need you to not be a creep and I need you to show up and give value to folks, right? That was a major weak part of my likelihood of success piece, right? And even the desired outcome, which is why I was talking in the in in how we figured out how we can sell our stuff is get people to faster wins. This idea that I can help you close your existing pipeline quicker and likelihood of success is much higher becomes this becomes a much more sustainable numerator. Yeah. Below that, time delay, right? How long it's going to take multiplied by the addition of effort and sacrifice, right? So anything that is you're going to get this result quicker is going to make the offer much more attractive. And then again, anything that is, hey, I'm going to give you all this stuff to do for you, the effort-wise, right? Anything that you're doing for somebody versus them doing it for you, that also, you know, that also greatly increases the likelihood of success in the numerator. And then the sacrifice, right? How easy is it going to be for you to go through this? Does it suck to work with me? Is it a pain in the ass to talk to me? And am I about, Am I going to leave you in a bad mood after every single time we talk? Or is every interaction that you have with me a wonderful interaction and you feel leaving energized, right? That is one part of the sacrifice. The other part of the sacrifice is just like, how many things do you need to stop doing that you enjoy doing? Or how much is it going to hurt? Or things of the sort. But I just really like this way of thinking about it. And if you can think about how you can make the desired outcome more attractive, or you can show that the likelihood of success is more likely, that is big part of how you can craft an offer. And then thinking about the amount of time that something takes and what things you can take off the table is going to greatly inform how you think of it. So I hope that you guys, I hope that you take this and just start thinking about how you talk about your offer, what you have to give and start putting it in those buckets. I'm going to keep this short. Come to the open mic session. (laughs) Register for it. Come to the live show if you want at 4.30 or show up at 5.30 on the dot or show up at 6 or whatever you want. But from 5.30 to 6 on Mondays, we're generally kicking it with some really great ideas. If you show up and you want to contribute to those great ideas, I post-produce content for you that you can then share on your LinkedIn, making you look like an expert. And if not, if you want to bring a problem or something you're working on, you're going to get some great advice. And that really puts everybody in the best position because it's easier to answer questions than to come up with your own. You know what I'm mean you also get access to yeah 
my idea immediately before everybody else. Not a lot of value there. I get it. But really what's super valuable is the community. Come make a friend. All right, that's it. I'm gonna let you go. Thank you for listening to this.